Welcome to Leaning In and Speaking Out, a Research Connection podcast. This is a podcast from Brandon University's Centre for Aboriginal and Rural Education Studies, or BU Cares. Every episode, we connect with a researcher and a community member around a topic of interest. We want to model how research connects with the broader community and highlight the knowledge that both researchers and community members bring to the table. So welcome to Leaning In and Speaking Out. This is the start of a special three-episode series on a very relevant topic, considering that September and October center around World Suicide Prevention Day, which just passed on September 10th, and World Mental Health Day, which is October 10th. We're here today to discuss suicidality in rural communities in Canada. So before we begin, I'd just like to preface this by saying that we are talking about a sensitive subject today, suicide, and lived experience of suicide will be discussed. If the topic of suicide, suicidal ideation, or self-harm are triggering for you, please be cautious while listening and engage in self-care and reach out for supports if needed. So this episode series stems from a recent project undertaken by Brandon University's Centre for Critical Studies of Rural Mental Health. The Public Health Agency of Canada, in partnership with the Mental Health Commission of Canada, previously completed a project investigating suicide, but felt that there were populations whose voices were missing. In spring of 2020, the centre was contracted by the Public Health Agency of Canada to investigate one of these missing groups, rural and remote communities. We conducted an in-depth scoping review of existing literature on rural suicide and conducted six focus groups across Canada. Three main themes emerged, stigma, service accessibility, and lived experience. My name is Kira Rausch. I am a research assistant for the Centre and for this project. I'm here today with a special guest who is going to help me speak to one of the three main themes we uncovered, stigma. So Richard, welcome. Thank you so much. And I appreciate being an an opportunity to be part of this podcast. Of course. Um, I guess that uh, one of the things that I would like to do is uh, let the audience know that I was one of those stakeholders uh, who has a a very strong interest in this. And I'm, again, very pleased to be able to offer my thoughts on the subject of stigma. Yes, thank you so much for being here. And like you said, you were a participant, but you're also actually a a partner with the center itself too. So we know that you're a big community advocate and a big big voice in, in rural Manitoba. So it's great to have you here. So we want to start off with asking you to share when we talk about stigma, particularly in rural communities, what does this mean to you? Um. I, th- I think that before, before we get into kind of talking about stigma, I think it's probably helpful if I give you a little bit of a background about uh, my own mental health experience. Of course. And uh, in doing so, uh, I think it gives, gives context to why I'm speaking with you today. I like to say, I like to tell people that I am, I am a mental health advocate who has good mental health with a diagnosed mental illness. Now, my mental illness specifically is bipolar, which is also a mood disorder. And how it really started for me was I was hospitalized around the age of 18. 
and at that time, I think that the diagnosis, I was hospitalized for two days, but I was in a small rural community mm-hmm. and I was hospitalized with what they told me, I think, was stomach ulcers. However, oh, okay, um, yeah. <laughs> I, I was also told at 18 that I worried too much. So now we kind of fast forward to my mid-late 30s. And through my work, I'd moved my family from central Ontario to Winnipeg. But I, I'd, I was still having difficulties. I was working, but I, had, I was using the EAP program at work. And at one point, I was seeing a counselor, and I talked to the counselor for the first time about my suicide ideations. Mm-hmm. And at that particular point, the counselor realized, and I didn't really realize how sick I really was. And one of the difficulties with mental illness is, is you have distorted thoughts. You, you don't really understand what's going on. Right. So... In that respect, uh, stigma was a real barrier to me. First of all, admitting to myself that I was sick, it was also a barrier because I didn't seek help due to how I would be perceived at work and other life environments. So I'm one of those people that, that didn't seek help. And fortunately, help came to me. And the other thing that I know now that I'd like to share is as much as we use the word suicide ideations, it's safe to say that that time in my life, I didn't value life, and I certainly didn't value my life, mm-hmm. which, which is, I think, really important for me to say. Because, of course, now, once I was put in the, the mental health care system and I saw a psychiatrist and I received the therapy appropriate for my illness, I became better. And now I look back on that time of my past as part of my past, but not of my present or future. Um, That's kind of the background. When we're we're talking about stigma in rural communities, I think for me, because I'm a mental health advocate, one of the things is I'm really careful about reading my audience. So as opposed to people who may not feel uh, that they have mental health concerns, that's not really going to be a topic that people are going to just have coffee around and have coffee about. And especially in rural communities, because there's the stigma that kind of suggests that there's, in their minds, that there's something something wrong with someone. They're not really sure what it is, but there's something. Mm-hmm. So I'm careful about not inserting myself into those types of conversations. And I would also add that Part of the mental health of someone who's going through a mental health crisis is to be able to feel safe. And so I believe that we need to have, somehow we need to have casual conversations about difficult subjects. And mental illness is one of those things that we need to really start to not be afraid to talk about. And again, that gets back to what's the stigma do right now? It just makes it difficult. Mm-hmm, exactly. I think that's a really great way to put it is it really prevents those conversations from taking place when that's a really big first step to reducing stigma is being able to talk about these things. Um, Ab- absolutely. And, you know, I like that when you started, you said that you are someone who has a diagnosed mental illness, but you're still in good mental health. 
And we've discussed this a little bit previously, but I did want to share just with the audience kind of what good mental health means. So mental health is a continuum and mental health and mental illness are not mutually exclusive. One definition of good mental health is that good mental health is not simply the absence of diagnosable mental health problems, although good mental health is likely to help protect against development of those problems. Good mental health is characterized by a person's ability to fulfill a number of key functions and activities, including the ability to learn, the ability to feel, express, and manage a range of positive and negative emotions, the ability to form and maintain good relationships with others, and the ability to cope and manage change and uncertainty in everyday life. So I think that's an interesting way to describe it and just a good basis for some people for kind of what we're talking about. And that stigma is something that can prevent people from reaching out, from talking about it, and from progressing to good mental health. I really like that particular definition. Um, in the past, and I, I, again, I'm retired, so decades ago, good mental health was considered the absence of mental illness, which is just nonsensical now. Mm -hmm. uh, but one of the real keys that you talk about is that life isn't about everything being good or not having sadness in your life or, or that, that whole thing about being able to feel, express, and manage a range of positive and negative emotions, that's really key. And when I became very, very ill, I didn't have that ability to cope. And instead of looking at it as I need help, I internalized the fact and felt that there was something wrong with me and had nothing to do with the illness that I had. And this is kind of supported by the help I got and why I'm able to talk to you now. So again, we go back to the fact that we really need to be on the same page when we're talking about good mental health mm -hmm. as opposed to just talking about mental health. So I think that's a great point. You know, we even mentioned World Mental Health Day, but what exactly is that discussing? What does that mean? And I think this is a good lead into, I know that something you're passionate about is the language we use when we talk about suicide, mental health, mental illness, and stigma. So would you like to expand on kind of what those different terms mean and, and how you prefer to use them? I, I will. And, uh, you know, to the audience, this is my own opinion, but, but it, it was very interesting for me from the start because we do have a lot of associations and really credible organizations that work tirelessly to remote mental wellness throughout Canada. One of those credible organizations first came out with a tagline, mental health is health. Now, I have no idea what that means. <laughs> I, and, and, I, and I still, I have a better idea right now, but when your tagline is something that, that someone who has lived experience can't figure out, I think maybe you should look at that a little bit. Now, would you ever say to yourself, physical health is health? No, probably not how you describe it. <laughs> At all. No. And, and yet, I think that one of the keys, the language itself, I think what they want to say is exactly what the, the definition of good mental health was, that we want people to have good mental health. I think that's what they're trying to say. The other thing that I, I'm really interested in is that you hear 
all the time, if you're reading, they will use the term a mental health issue. Do you have a mental health concern? Mm-hmm. Or problem? Do you have a mental health problem? Exactly. And they won't actually use the word mental illness. I think the service providers, if they use those terms, what does it mean to the people getting the service? Let's use the example again, another physical example of someone who goes in to emerge and they have broken their wrist so that you can absolutely see it swollen. And if someone asks you what happened, you're not going to say, I have a physical issue with my wrist. Yeah, I have a concern about my wrist. I have wrist. a concern about <laughs> my wrist, exactly. So again, I think we need to be on the same page with the language because the users, the end user, really needs to have a good understanding. And if they, if they don't have that ability to have that continuity of conversation, then that can be, again, the person who needs the help can feel there's stigma involved because they're not able to talk to their service provider in the way they think they're supposed to, rather than the other way around of the service provider understanding what their needs are. Right. And I think you've really hit the the nail on the head here. When we're talking about rural communities, especially, you know, and use the example of emergency, I think that's where a lot of people have to go because there are fewer resources there. They can't just go into, say, a a crisis center that's specifically centered around mental illness or suicidal ideation, things like that. It's instead the emergency system. And so if, if we look at them not using words like mental illness and using mental illness or suicide, like they're taboo, the system itself is then kind of fostering that stigma, even if they don't mean to. You're absolutely right. That's a, that's a very good way to put it. You know, before we move on for this, from this conversation around, around language usage and how that in itself can perpetrate stigma, what about suicide specifically? Um, and, you know, suicide, I think when people talk about it, they will often say suicide. But I feel like there's still quite a big taboo around people disclosing that they've had suicidal ideation or that they've attempted I think there's still a big taboo there. And do you think that's especially large in rural communities or does that have an influence on people's willingness to seek help? I have in the past, I have run peer support groups for individuals specifically with bipolar. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that we're able to do is we're able to talk about those things and discuss it in a very relaxed, clear manner. Obviously, it can be a difficult subject, but once I have an understanding, I'm around people who don't think of it as a taboo to talk about it, that empowers them. And that's one of the things I think is really important to understand. Breaking stigma can really empower people to have conversations about suicide and say, you know, I was at this particular point and And I think that's something that in a rural community, again, is tricky to do because you really have to trust the people that you're talking to. And that trust is hard to come by. Absolutely. And I think, yeah, that that empowerment that you spoke of is probably such an important factor to people being willing to open up and, you know, seek supports and just talk about it in general. 
when you mentioned, you know, especially in rural communities with things like peer support groups and building trust, I guess that can kind of lead us to the idea of anonymity in rural communities. And this came up a lot in actually our stakeholder consultations is that one barrier in rural communities is that lack of anonymity. You know, your neighbor knows (laughs) everything in your business. The whole little town knows everything. Could you think you could speak to, because you have experience with support groups and I know you've experienced running support groups in, in Minnedosa about how this lack of anonymity and confidentiality plays into that. I don't have the answer to why, but but you hit upon the fact how difficult it is for individuals in a small town, because if you're going to run a peer support group at a particular location, people will find out about it. And a lot of people don't want their car to be seen there. Mm-hmm. But when I did run a peer support group, one of the things that was interesting was that most of the people came from other areas rather than having their vehicle known to be in the, the area where the peer support group was yeah, going Yeah, in their on. own hometown. Right. So they, they had no problem traveling and in conditions such as snowstorms to mm-hmm. be able to sit and feel comfortable to talk. And that just says something about how they're feeling and how they believe that they're being judged all the time in their own community. Absolutely. And I can see that being, I mean, you've witnessed it firsthand, but seeing a big factor and that having to travel, I mean, we know (laughs) what weather conditions can be like and having to go through that just to access some support is something that we wish people didn't have to do, but it makes sense if they are fearing that judgment from their neighbors or anyone in the town, even if they wouldn't maybe get that judgment, but that fear is still there. That stigma is still there. It absolutely is. And I'd add one more thing. If you think about in small areas, if you think about that one in four individuals right now in Canada, or even one in five, has a mental health problem Mm -hmm. or (laughs) mental illness, you think about that, you know that in a small town that people such as first responders could very well be relatives of the people that they're going to see in terms of a crisis. And that would be a very, very difficult situation. Again, that's why stigma is such a stain, because it really does affect everyone in Mm -hmm. one way or the other. And kind of all areas or the whole continuum of suicidality in a way, because I think stigma can be internalized, but it can also prevent you from like we've talked about reaching out. Right. It can prevent you from accessing supports, but also even in a crisis situation, it could be something that could potentially be a barrier to crisis response, which is, I think, a really important point to make. The other thing about in a, in a rural community, there are also a lot of people who want to help. So when I talk about the stigma, this doesn't apply to a lot of people who really are out there to support. Mm-hmm. However, the importance of this subject is that while we know there are people out there that can help, that people who need it are the ones who are sometimes paralyzed by stigma. And that's the real difficulty, that they're not going to speak out if they don't feel safe. They're not going to speak out if they don't feel the resources are there, because why would they? Absolutely. And quite frankly, 
I'm so glad to be part of this because I got the help that I needed. Right. So I'm on the other side now. And I can say, once you learn and once you're comfortable and understand, then you can move forward very successfully in your own life. Yeah. And thank you. And I think it is important that we do have someone like you talking today who shows that once you do kind of get past that, it can get better. And you can hit that point where, you know, you are in good mental health and you're doing very well. And that, you know, it's good to have that voice and that perspective. So um, one large area of discussion was that of masculine norms in rural communities. And, you know, our stakeholders often tied these masculine norms to stigma and the pressure that they have. But as someone who does belong to a rural community and does identify as male, is there anything that you would like to say to kind of expand on these ideas of what masculine norms means? Well, uh, I think for starters, because I'm retired, I have decades of experience with a mental illness. And typically when I grew up as well, that masculine norm was always there. You didn't discuss or talk about things. And I think and I hope that now with uh, social media and with positive internet messages, Mm -hmm. I think that that's something that can be looked at differently. And I think it is looked at differently, but I really don't have an answer on this one. Again, because we can say what we should do, but going back to the fact that if someone who needs the help can't reach out because of how they perceive they're going to be looked at, then it's difficult to be able to help. I got lucky because I got the help I needed, but I didn't reach out. And so how are we able to help individuals, especially living in rural communities and don't have the ability to talk about what's actually happening Mm -hmm. in their head? Yeah. And so when you talk about, you know, what kind of prevented you from seeking help for a long time, and then obviously the help kind of came to you, which is wonderful. But do you think that prevention, do you think it was kind of stigma more generally, or do you think any part of it did have to do with the masculine norms and ideals? And for example, what our stakeholders often talked about, you know, men don't cry or men don't share their emotions. They don't talk about it. You know, they kind of just suck it up. So do you think that had any part in, you know, preventing you from seeking help for so long? Or do you think it was just the stigma more generally? I think it's fair to say that that certainly played a part in it. And when you think about someone having a mental illness, growing up, I was always led to believe that I needed to be a certain way. It was like a setup for this is how you should live your life. When in fact, as I was living it, I was experiencing difficulty that people were just saying to me, well, you know, just stop worrying uh, to an 18 year old. And so, oh, well well then, why didn't you tell me that earlier? Yeah, (laughs) I really didn't uh, try that myself. (laughs) Exactly. (sighs) Well, and so I guess we're kind of moving into um, Manitoba health systems. And I know we, you'd brought this up a little bit before, but how even without maybe realizing it, are set up in a way that stigma is kind of inherently a part of it. So do you want to expand more on what that means? I do. And I'll 
keep repeating that these are my own thoughts. So certainly I have no medical background whatsoever, but let's just say I have a good understanding of how to maintain my own good mental health with a mental illness. Mm -hmm. And if you were to look at any credible site for things like depression and bipolar, which are mood disorders, and this is what's going to talk about the possibility of medications and talk therapy. And what happened for me was I was able to see a psychiatrist. I started with medication. And then while the medication was working, I had talk therapy. And that's an integral piece of the success of treating a mental illness. Absolutely. And I can just support that by saying that I am, or was, I've graduated, but a psychology student, and that's exactly what we learned. So. Okay. (laughs) So good. So, so with that agreement, let's look at someone who has been diagnosed with diabetes. One of the things that our province and, and our Manitoba health system has basically said is we're going to look after you with a continuity of care. So if, if you have diabetes, you've probably gone to see a doctor and the doctor at the same time is going to kind of have a diagnosis. And that diagnosis will include his idea of how a person can be looked after, including getting a chance to see a dietitian, mm-hmm. including the chance of going to a foot clinics. Um, basically, having diabetes, which can be chronic illness, they look at it and say, yes, we support you in every way because we have coverage for it. Now, the province of Manitoba acknowledges their responsibility to include mental illness under the umbrella of mental health coverage. And they do that by providing psychiatrists and mental health wards and hospitals. So they acknowledge they make that commitment. However, what they really need to do is to provide that talk therapy at no charge to an individual. Because right now, someone who needs that therapy, and we agree that the therapy is needed, that's not covered. They, they may get a limited number of sessions with someone. I think it's six sessions. Yeah, or, we had that, that number was echoed a lot in consultations. Right. Or they can pay $170 an hour. Now, I know there are lots of therapists who would be listening to this and say, well, that's, um, we can use a sliding scale. We can do all these different things. But providing that access to individuals who need the service is fundamentally part of recovery. And I think right now, all that we really have with the government for mental illness, it's largely crisis oriented and with not much attention at all to prevention or for long-term follow-up. So for me, stigma can be blown up if the government realizes and says basically, okay, this is what we need to do. Let's do it. And once the government gives that opportunity, everything good will come out of that. And stigma won't have a chance to thrive in that type of environment. I think so that's, my, a... that's my soapbox. <laughs> I think that's that my was soapbox. really well put. And I think very easy for anyone to understand we heard so many times that echoing of, well, yeah, there is some coverage for mental health care, but it's usually, yeah, about six sessions. And 
people said that they had just started to feel comfortable and build rapport and share everything that they want to share with that psychiatrist when they're forced to stop because the coverage runs out. And you wouldn't have to deal with that if you had a physical disease, as, we're, as I guess we can put it. And so I think that's a really good place to kind of slowly be coming to a close here is talking about those big formal institutions where you need funding and policy changes and just more acceptance overall. Absolutely. And, and of course, it's difficult. But it's absolute time because we spend how much money is actually really spent on stigma campaigns? Uh, what would be a good example? Uh, mental health in the workplace workshops. Yeah. How many, how, many, how many millions are we using to offset the fact that the one direct service that's needed, the talk therapy, is not included in Manitoba health coverage. And as someone who's come out on the other side, I'm just, I'm always mystified why that isn't part of the conversation. Absolutely. And I think it's people like you in this conversation we're happening or having right now, where it really emphasizes that those with lived experience, well, we need to be listening to them. And, you know, and that is a personal experience, but I think if you get a bunch of people with lived experience kind of echoing the same sentiments, then it should have a weight. It should have bearing. And I think it's really important that the conversation we're having today, hopefully more of those can happen and we can get even more weight behind these words. Absolutely. A hundred percent. Well, I just want to ask, and we're kind of wrapping up, but is there anything else you'd like to share before we kind of wrap up today? No, I think I'm pleased and that we are having the opportunity to talk about this. And overall, I know that it's very difficult that individuals who are dealing with, uh, and I'm just going to say serious mental health concerns, problems, issues, <laughs> I, I hope that somewhere along the line, they can get a bit of a comfort that there are people out there working towards the support for them and to really, as much as possible, not get caught in the stigma that certainly I got caught. Awesome. Well, I think that's a great place to end things. Uh, thank you so much, Richard, for joining me today and discussing this super important topic. My name is Kira Rausch, and I will see you next time. You've been listening to Leaning In and Speaking Out, the Research Connection podcast. For more episodes or to learn more about the BU Cares Research Centre, please visit our website at brandonu.ca forward slash BU cares or you can come find us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, or YouTube.